Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. everyone and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to a writer and editor, Paul Hirsch, the author of A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. He is an editor who has had a huge impact on the industry. He has edited some of the most important films of the last 50 years, including Star Wars, Carrie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mission Impossible, the list just goes on and on. Planes, trains and automobiles. We've just had Thanksgiving, so there's there's one. Footloose, Ray, um, Steel Magnolias, it, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, um, unbelievable CV of film. So it's a real honour to talk to him and to hear his stories. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't need to... Actually, let's stop wasting time. Let's get on with the uh, let's get on with the conversation. Remember, though, if you do like the episode, please um, click on like, subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell anybody who might be interested. If you're a writer, write a review. Uh, if you're not a writer, if you're just a listener, write a review of the podcast. That would be great. Uh, we're, the numbers are going up and we're, that's really um, gratifying for me but uh, it's not for me it's for my guests I want my guests to get as much exposure as possible from these conversations because I think they're really fascinating so I hope you do too you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty D-R-J-O-N-T-Y but before you do any of that let's dive in straight away with the conversation <music> Thank you. 
have a long history with Italy. I, mm. I haven't been there as much as I'd like to be, but uh, parlo italiano, l'ho studiato all'università quando ero giovane e uh, sono andato uh, qualche volta. Um, but it's been a long time since I was speaking it, you know. Right. So. Lei parla benissimo. Grazie. <laughs> Grazie tanto. Allora parliamo italiano oggi. Ah, mi, mi piacerebbe, ma purtroppo i nostri ascoltatori sono... Ci sono gli italiani, però. C'è Andrea che, che ascolta. <laughs> so, ciao Andrea. <laughs> Congratulations on the, on the memoir. It was a really fascinating, uh, absolutely fascinating read. It's just, it felt like a trip through film history to some degree, in the sense that, that you were kind of there for so much of that, the, those, those years of, of some of the best films that we've had. A long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. Maybe that's where we, we, can, we can start because you, I mean, but you've, you've, your, your CV is, your filmography is so full of so many great films. But of course, with, with that title, you're, you're referring to perhaps the most famous in terms of Star Wars. Well, it's the it's the one that you know most people have heard of most, and you know I I knew that when I wrote the book that would be the chapter that everyone was most interested in, and it happened early in my career. So I decided to ignore the second and pay attention to the first idea, which was that that's what people wanted to read about most. So uh, I put it in the title. It's so interesting. Sort of like as you're writing the book, it's like um, the same skills that you have as an editor are coming in. Of, of you know, I, I can I don't necessarily have to go completely chronologically. I can put this here and then this here. Did you did you yeah. reckon that? Did you feel those skills sort of um, aligning? Um, editing the book was very familiar, but I have to hasten to add that I had some very good help editing the book, and that I originally started out writing the book non chronologically, and found myself writing. I had met so-and-so earlier when I was, and I was doing a lot of explaining how I'd met this person, how we knew each other. And I thought, this is getting so complicated. I, sh I should just do it. I'll just do it chronologically. And because that was the simplest way to tell the story. And um, frankly, in this day and age, I feel that the, the use of the flashback is overused. There's hardly a... a a show you can, uh, or a movie you can watch that doesn't have cut to the backstory, you know, or flashback, often without handrails for the audience. You sort of have to figure out yourself, for yourself, that you're in a different time. Um, but I didn't want to, I, I wanted to tell the story straightforwardly. And then my literary agent said, you have to get to Carrie by page 50. And I said, why? He said, well, uh, Carrie is the first movie that, people will have heard of that you did and you have to get it in the first 50 pages. I said, why? And he said, well, the readers for the publishing houses only read the first 50 pages of any manuscript. I thought, great. So I looked at my text and I didn't get to carry till page 90 or something. I said, well, I can't, I can't cut that stuff out. You know, uh, how I got into the business is the question I get asked most, you know, how did you get into it? That's the people. That's the thing people are, you know, really interested in. And um, my editor, a woman named Jennifer Shute, uh, made the brilliant and cinematic suggestion that we start with Carrie and then 
um, you know, then pick up the store and then go back, you know? So uh, it was not for, uh, <laughs> it was not for aesthetic reasons, but for practical reasons, but it worked beautifully because as I said before, I thought that, you know, the chapter on Star Wars would be what people would be most interested in. Star Wars happened to follow Carrie in, in my filmography. And, um, you know, I went directly from working on Carrie to, to Star Wars. And so I, I get to the end of the Carrie chapter. I'm on my way to go work on Star Wars. And then I go to the next chapter, which originally had been the first chapter. And I retitled it 10 years earlier. So uh, that's how that worked out. But, you know, but this is the kind of thing that you, that you do when you're editing a movie. You sort of improvise based on whatever the influences are, you know. Well, absolutely. I was going to say this sort of um, practical decision making where it's, uh, you know, it, the, there's the art and the commerce and the, you know, uh, satisfying what the director wants as well, obviously. But it, it's a sort of, it's no one, it doesn't seem to be one specific thing. It seems to be a, a um, I want to use an Italian now, we started speaking in Italian, an insieme, an, an altogether of, uh, of things. Yeah, it's not, it was not a purely aesthetic choice. Although I was happy with it, you know, I was happy with the way it worked out. Uh, it had not been my instinct. Uh, anyway. Hmm. And so you, you, men you mentioned the question earlier, and, I, and for, for our listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity of reading your memoir, how did you get into the business? Oh, well, um, I had thought of, you know, I went to Columbia University in New York, and when, we, when it was time to graduate, I had to figure out a way to stay in school because the Vietnam War was going on, and I would get a student deferment. And at that time, everyone was either going to med school or law school or business school, and I didn't want to do any of those. And uh, there was also journalism school, which was really not for me. And um, I never, I never considered I had any skill as, at writing. Um, so I'm, I'm always kind of struck when people say they they enjoyed my writing in the book. Some some do, and it's always surprising to me. But anyway. Um, there was also architecture school. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'd been an art history major and I thought, well, I, you know, architect, I like architecture. That's, and that can be something interesting. So um, I applied and I was accepted, but I didn't have enough credits to uh, uh, graduate Columbia without taking a summer course. And I needed a few, you know, just, I think I needed a few more credits and I was able to get into a program in Paris where I was able to get the required credits and spend June and half of July in Paris uh, on the left bank. And the classes went for half a day. And I had uh, from noon on to myself and wandering around the left bank, I would see these art theaters showing American movies. And it would say Raoul Walsh Film Festival. And I, th I would think, who, who is Raoul Walsh? And it would say uh, Howard Hawks Film Festival. And I thought, who is Howard Hawks? And um, I started going to these movies, and they were movies from the 40s and, you know, mostly 40s and the 30s. And uh, it was a revelation to see Hollywood movies, which in, in our day back then was, were considered just mere entertainment, were regarded by the French as art. And uh, uh, around that time, the Cinematheque, 
was showing a uh, an Orson Welles series. And I went to see on on Monday, I went to see Citizen Kane. I had heard the title, but I didn't know anything about it. And um, I went to see it and it was a print that was not subtitled in French. It was the original English. The place was packed. I don't think everyone there spoke English, but I think they went to see the, the lighting and the, and the staging and the music and so forth and the, the cutting. And um, anyway, it got to the end and, uh, you know, the, the end just knocked me over. It was just fantastic. One of the great endings in all of film history. Um, so the next night I went back and I saw the Magn Magnificent Ambersons. Wednesday was um, The Lady from Shanghai. Thursday was Touch of Evil. And Friday they were showing, uh, I think it was Othello and Wells was going to appear in person and you couldn't get near the place. I couldn't get in. But anyway, those films by Wells sort of awakened uh, an interest I had in, in, uh, in movies. I always loved movies. And uh, the fall, in the fall, I went back to New York and started at architecture school. And uh, I decided that I just had enough of school. I was, I was enrolled in a four-year bachelor's degree again. I had already gotten a BA, and I was now facing four years to get a Bachelor of Architecture. And uh, I just didn't want to do that. And simultaneously, a friend of mine was... Uh, working in the Columbia University neighborhood, editing a small documentary and he had, in his apartment. And I went and visited him and I saw a movieola for the first time. Now, in 1966, there was no such thing as videotape, uh, at least for the, for the public. The, the networks had them, of course. But um, the only way you could see a moving image in those days was by going to the movies or by turning on the television. And you saw it only... Uh, live going forward at sound speed. There was no such thing as pause or rewind or fast forward. Uh, none of those things existed. And here was a machine, the movieola, that could stop on a frame and go back. And uh, I was astounded. I thought, wow, this is so cool. And I decided I wanted to, and I saw all the tools and the equipment. I always liked working with my hands. And I saw... Um, you know, splicers and synchronizers and reels and rewinds and uh, all the various, you know, different colored uh, grease pencils and uh, different colored tapes and boxes. And I, it's sort of an arts and crafts aspect of film editing in those days that appealed to me. And um, I decided I wanted to pursue it. And I didn't know anything more about it except that it, was, it looked cool. That, that was all I knew. Excuse me. So I, I dropped out of architecture school and I got a job um, delivering packages for a small industrial film company. And I would take the work print from the editors in the, in the office over to the negative cutter and I would pick up the cut negative from the negative cutter and take it to the lab for printing. And then I'd pick up the prints from the lab and bring them back to the office and mount them on reels and send them out to whoever they were they were intended for us. So um, I sort of uh, was acting as a, as a gopher, you know, uh, for a couple of weeks. And I met uh, one of the guys that I met on my rounds was a negative cutter. He was looking to hire somebody 
um, to train. And I went back and I spoke to one of the editors. I said, what do you think? I've been offered this job. And he said, well, you'd be handling film and not packages. And I thought, well, that's, that's a good point. You know, so after two weeks, I gave them two weeks notice. And uh, I went to work for this negative cutter. And I worked for him for about six months. I learned the whole technical end of the business, how you prepare negative for printing and um, how you have to drop frames in order to make a splice and uh, various things that uh, were useful and important to know. But after a while, I stopped learning and it became repetitive. And it's a very, it's a very uh, boring job. Uh, you have to be, you can't make any mistakes. You know, you have to be very focused on something that's really boring. So um, I decided I, I, I would, and the guy was a screamer too. So he screamed at me once too often. I said, screw this. And I left. And then I got a job as an assistant editor, which I wasn't, but I knew enough to be uh, an assistant editor at a trailer house. And the editor there uh, was uh, working alone at that point, needed an assistant. And after a couple of months there, he was, getting more work than he could handle. So he gave me something to cut. And the client was United Artists. They liked what I did. And it was a 10 minute documentary on the making of the Thomas Crown Affair. They needed cut down to three and a half minutes. So I did that, they liked it. They gave me another one to do. And then from then on, I was cutting, uh, these are called featurettes, documentaries about the making of. And uh, I was cutting featurettes and trailers for a while. And then uh, my brother uh, had a job at Universal as a low-level, entry-level executive scouting, writing, and directing talent in the New York area. And if you were a young filmmaker looking for money from Universal, you would go to him and pitch a project. And um, one, of the, one of these young directors who came to him was Brian De Palma. And they went to Universal with a project that my brother liked and Universal rejected it. So uh, during his two week vacation from his job, he raised money independently and he and Brian shot this movie, uh, Greetings. And among the three, it was about three young guys trying to get out of the draft. And uh, Greetings was the was the way the draft letter, all, you know, if you got a letter in the mail and it said greetings, you knew you were being drafted. That was standard, the standard uh, opening line. So uh, the three, one of the three actors was about three young guys and one of them was Robert De Niro. And so anyway, the picture needed a trailer. So they came to me uh, and I cut a trailer for them. And that's how I met Brian. And uh, he and I hit it off, and the picture did fairly well. And they, uh, I think they won the Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, or Brian won it rather. Uh, you know, second prize for first time a young director or whatever. And uh, they got the money to do a sequel that was originally entitled Son of Greetings, but changed the title to Hi Mom. And that was my first film. I was 23 years old. That film is so um, of its time as well. It so, so much feels like a 1960s, that everything is possible. Uh, I, I rewatched it recently having read after reading your book and, and was, was watching out for 
for the things that you talked about in the book as well. And um, it, it's such a, it feels like such a, a daring and radical film, so the sort of film that we don't see enough of perhaps these days. Yeah, I mean, when I watch it, I, I, I saw a film recently, I can't remember what it was now, but it, had, it gave me the same feeling as my mom, it was like young guys who were just, let's make a movie, you know, it's like the habit of making a movie. Yeah, it was very uh, disorganized. I mean, there was no script. Brian was working from uh, a handful of, you know, uh, pages he had scribbled some notes on. The first cut was way too long, but we didn't know that and uh, allowed the producer to see it with disastrous results. But um, I learned a lot. You know, I went into it knowing nothing, but the saving grace was I didn't know that I knew nothing. So I went into the, I went into the project with the confidence of ignorance. You know, I thought, yeah, I can do this. No problem. <laughs> and I didn't know that I knew nothing. But uh, anyway, it's a great way to start. I didn't get another picture for three years. And I filled in again by doing uh, trailers and uh, small films. Um, then Brian got the money to do uh, Sisters, needed an editor, and hired me. And at that point, it really you know got the ball rolling. And there's also a, a problem, isn't there, in terms of, so, you know, there's... Um... It's something that you, that is detailed throughout the book as well. Of, of to, in order to get into working in the Hollywood system, you have to have a certain amount of experience. But to get the experience, you have to already be inside the system. Yeah, it's the catch twenty two. For for quite a while, you were sort of hovering, sort of doing stuff in New York and and, and moving between the two, right? Yeah, well, I didn't work in Hollywood until uh, uh, after until after Star Wars. So I did five pictures with Brian before anybody else hired me, and that was George. But, uh, you know, Brian was, was having su some success and getting more and more money and getting financing from studios. So I was sort of worked into the system working with him, uh, although I was only working in New York. So I wasn't really part of the, the Hollywood machine quite yet, you know. That point the the uh, your relationship with Brian is a is a real interesting sort of thread a narrative that goes all the way through the book almost I mean it's it's interrupted at certain points you're going off and you're working with different people of course but it sort of is a is a bit of a continuous theme as well well you know we we worked really well together and uh, Brian was my mentor he was uh, he gave me he, he put his confidence in me and he encouraged me and he empowered me and you know it was uh, a great uh, boon to me. And of course, he introduced me to all of his friends who were part of the, you know, what the, what the French call the, the American New Wave, you know, or the, the New Wave of the 70s. So I, I recently was on a book tour through Francophone Europe. I was in France and Belgium and Switzerland, met a lot of people at Cinematheques and film schools. And uh, they've sort of lumped me in with, you know, because of my connection with with uh, De Palma and Lucas, and I almost worked for Spielberg and Scorsese, although I wasn't available when they called. Because I knew all these guys back then, they sort of lumped me in with them, which is fine with me, you know. I, so. <laughs> You'll accept that. You'll accept that yeah. company. Yeah, it was okay. But yeah, of course, they all knew each other, and I knew them all, and, you know, we were all about the same age, you know, within a few years, and uh, all part of this, uh, it really was a kind of a new wave sweeping into Hollywood. 
Yeah, it seems like an, a, a fascinating atmosphere, and it seems like something that's very open to lots of different ideas. You know, obviously, all these guys are amazingly sort of film literate, but there's also a sort of interesting ideas generally. There seems to be a ferment of, of stuff going on. Yeah, well, they all had very different sensibilities, but they all shared a, a love and passion for movies. I'm not sure that's that still exists today. I, I don't know. I've been out of the business for a number of years now, and you know, these days, a year is like a decade used to be. So I think it changed fast. One thing I wanted to ask, just just going back to your Orson Welles sort of um, your private Orson Welles season in Paris. I mean, his films are notoriously, except for Citizen Kane, they're notorious for sort of this idea that the editor has has you know betrayed the the vision that he had how did you how did you feel how do you feel about that now and how did you feel about it when you were watching it them at the time you pr- it probably wasn't even sort of common knowledge necessarily well i had you know i had no uh, understanding of editing or what it was i mean i in citizen kane it becomes quite clear that you know the dinner sequence where the years go by where they're at the table and it's breakfast i guess at the breakfast table year after year and a sort of collapsed time with that sort of montage. But I wasn't really aware of editing. I mean, I was also passionately uh, enthusiastic about Breathless and I didn't know why, you know, there was just something about it that, that uh, attracted me. Uh, I didn't learn about uh, Wells's problems with the studio until much, much later. You know, I was completely a, a naive audience in, in those days. What happened with Magnificent Ambersons, which was the first picture that Wells did after um, Citizen Kane, was that the uh, Citizen Kane, I think, was 1941, I believe. Anyway, it was the start of the war, and the State Department had organized a, uh, a program to try to get the South, uh, the Latin American uh, countries to side with the allies. They were, uh, I think, Brazil and Argentina were neutral, and uh, and uh, I forget, I don't know exactly the, the history of the politics at the time, but they organized this uh, film program where they subsidized uh, Hollywood directors to go to various countries, make films in collaboration with the South Americans in order to strengthen the political ties. And Wells went off to uh, Rio de Janeiro, went off to Brazil to film, uh, to make a film. And he was going to make this film about, uh, there was a, there was a, uh, an event, a historic event in Brazil in which some impoverished fishermen from the north, which is in the north, it's you know, closer to the equator, so it's a poorer area. They put together a raft and sailed the raft down to Rio de Janeiro and into the harbor to protest their living situation and uh, it was a, they became national heroes. And the, you know, they were covered by, uh, you know, newsreels and radio. And uh, Wells decided to make a movie about them. And he was going to use non-professionals to, as, as actors. And uh, he, uh, there's a wonderful documentary about it called It's All True. Which was, which was the name of the film, I think, as well, wasn't it? It was the name they were, he was going to use. Sounds right. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, he got involved with, uh, he was kind of a wild young man. And there are stories of him throwing furniture out the hotel window onto the Copacabana. And 
he was sort of out of control and he was spending a lot of uh, money. And the studio, meanwhile, was forging ahead with the post-production of The Magnificent Ambersons. And he wasn't around when they were finishing the film because he was off in South America carrying on and chasing this, this project. Well, anyway, during the filming of, of uh, the Wells Project, he recreated the raft sailing into Rio de Janeiro with the original uh, uh, heroes playing their parts. And uh, there was an accident and one of them drowned. And it became a huge national story. Wells went in front of the newsreels and cameras and he said, I swear I will finish this film in honor of, you know, the, the hero who's, who died. Maybe, maybe more than one of them was drowned, I forget. So then he was committed to finishing the film, but he didn't really have a script. And the studio was losing confidence in him and telling him, you know, they were cutting off his money and uh, limiting how much time he could spend down there. So this was all in the context of finishing Magnificent Ambersons. So uh, in terms of the studio destroying his film, well, he wasn't there. He was off, you know, chasing this this situation he'd gotten himself into. So um it's a very interesting story, but and that was that was kind of common as well in those days. Anyway, the idea of a director sort of sitting in on the cut in in the nineteen forties was, you know, wasn't. You had people like John Ford actually not shooting stuff because he wanted to sort of edit it in the camera. He didn't want to give them any alternatives. Yeah, well, that, yeah, it wasn't the way it worked back then. No, you know, back then you you the director shot the movie. And then the editing department took over and you had women like Dorothy Spencer or uh, Margaret Booth, who were the heads of editing departments. There was a woman named Barbara McLean at 20th Century Fox. They would head up these departments. They would assign editors to the picture and they would oversee the editing along with the studio chief. And the directors were just, you know, they'd finish shooting one picture on Friday and they'd start another one on Monday. So, uh, (coughs) excuse me, Ford, Ford was famous for trying to protect himself from interference by the studio uh, and try to shoot it in such a way that it can only be cut one way. It's funny, I worked with Brad Bird on, on uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Mm. And I noticed that, you know, Brad had been an animator, so he thought he was a very careful planner and he would shoot the, these shots. And uh, I noticed he didn't have much overlap between one shot and the next. Uh, a piece of action, you know, uh, he would pick up and he wasn't covering it terribly much. The, I say what I mean, the overlap was very brief. And I would say to him, why don't you let the camera run a little bit more, you know, and then pick it up a little earlier so you have more overlap between the different angles. He said, no, I don't want anyone recutting my stuff, you know. So he had, he had read these stories about Ford, I suppose. We got to the the editing of the film, he, and then we were, you know, working together. He'd say, why don't you extend that shot a little bit? And I said, well, I can't because you yelled cut, you know? And then, <laughs> and then he realized that the only person he had foiled was himself. <laughs> nobody, nobody was coming in to recut the picture. It was just... That's like learning the lessons of a different epoch and sort of being in, in trouble because of it, I guess. Yeah, he learned the wrong lesson. Um, and it's a different age, you know, it's a different era so anyway, um, yeah, Wells was always fighting with the uh, with the studio. And, and when you when you go on to Star Wars, you're working with um, you're also working with Mar- Marcia uh, Lucas. Marcia. 
yeah, you're coming in. You're you're working. Uh, you're working with 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 her and um, exactly. Yeah. So what's the what's the situation when you arrive there? How how far along are they with the with the film? I was the fourth editor hired on the picture. The first editor was let go when they finished principal photography and left uh, England. And uh, George and Marsha were very unhappy with the cut. She was an editor of, you know, she had edited Taxi Driver and Alice doesn't live here anymore. She didn't want to work on Star Wars, but George implored her. He says, you've got to take over, you know, because uh, this this cut is hopeless. And uh, she agreed. And they had hired Richard because he lived in in... Uh, close to where they were working in San Francisco. And uh, Richard had cut, uh, he had worked on the conversation and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He was very accomplished. They came through New York on the way back to California and we were working on Carrie at the time. We had basically finished the cut and we showed it to George and Marsha and they uh, went off to California. About two weeks later, I got a phone call from Marsha saying, can you come help out? I wanted nothing more. And uh, I, I agreed. And, and that's how it turned out. So, but I had to finish Carrie first. So they had finished shooting uh, Star Wars, I want to say around the beginning of July, something like that, or mid July. So I had to, uh, I had to stay on Carrie till the end of September. I wasn't available until till then to work on the film. So Marsha started working on the end battle. That was her assignment. She took that on. And Richard started recutting the, the uh, you know, the cut that George was unhappy with of, of the body of the film. Right. And they realized that it wasn't going to go fast enough unless they had more help. So uh, by the time I got on the picture, a lot of work had already been done, you know. Uh, so what happened was Marsha kept working on the end battle. I jumped into recutting the reels that uh, with Richard and, we would sort of leapfrog. If he was on reel two, I would take reel three, and, and then he'd go on to four, and I'd go on to five, and so forth. I didn't see what he was working on. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. We we had agreed when I came on that since we were all working together that and our names are all going to be on the film, that we would show each other our scenes, and if anybody had any notes that they, you know, if they saw something they were uncomfortable with, discuss it and and try and work it out so that everyone was was happy about that. So there was a lot of uh, consultation, uh, mm. but it was more like a courtesy consultation. You know, people were uh, inhibited from interfering in other people's work, and it was a little bit of you know, uh, it, you had to be, I had to be very polite. You know, right, right. But it was fine and. Uh, at a certain point, George had been getting ILM up off the ground and flying down there half the week. He would go down to uh, Los Angeles on a Monday morning, stay there till Wednesday evening, work three days at ILM. Wednesday night, he'd fly back. And then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, he would work with us, the editors. And uh, we worked that way for a while. And then the studio was concerned about expenses on the film and wanted to cut the end battle. They said, you know, they've rescued the princess. The movie's over. You know, you don't need, need the, the end battle. And George was determined to have the end battle. So he wanted to put that into work, into the pipeline at, at ILM first, so that once it got going, you know, it's like 
with getting, you know, slightly pregnant. <laughs> yeah, the co- the costs have been sunk. You you have to follow through. Exactly. So he wanted to finish the the end battle first to get that in the works first, so they couldn't cut it. So ILM gave us a deadline for when they needed the cut. So he took me off what I was doing, and he split the sequence in half. And Marsha took one half. I took the other half. When I say half, I think she had the longer the longer half. If that makes any sense. But he gave me the 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 end the final trench run, Luke's trench run. So we worked on that separately for a day or two, and then we combined the sequence uh, sequences into one. And then we did a sort of a tag team editing session where um, I would sit at the cam and, and drive, and uh, Marsha and George would sit behind me on the couch and make no, you know, give make comments, and I'd make suggestions, and we'd work that way for a while. And after a couple of hours, I would. I would give up my seat and Marsha would drive and I would sit next to George and we went on that way for a couple of days and we locked the sequence and then turned it in. And then I went back to recutting the reels. We had a screening for uh, Alan Ladd Jr., who was the head of the studio uh, around Christmas time. And the picture was very rough because we had virtually no visual effects Mm. and we had placeholder shots uh, instead of... Uh, the the effects that were still not made yet. And it was very hard to uh, interpret, even for us who were working on it. And I wondered what he thought of it. And uh, the lights came on at the end and he said, great. So I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if he thought, you know, like you said, some costs, you know, I guess he thought in for a penny, in for a pound. He said, great. And we went on. And then my contract was to the end of the year. So uh, Marsha came to speak to me and I thought she was going to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Say uh, thank you very much, goodbye, and good luck. Uh, but she didn't. What she told me was that Marty Scorsese's editor had died, uh, the editor who was working on New York, New York, and Marty had asked her, to come down to LA and, and take over the film. And she really wanted to do that because it was a character film and she was, you know, much more, it was much more in, in tune with her sensibilities, not this, you know, spaceship rocket, you know, space gun, ray gun kind of movie. So she wanted to go work on that. And George had said that he wanted to finish the, ed- uh, the picture with just one editor and he wanted it to be me. So I was surprised at that because I, because Richard had been hired before me, I assumed that he was going to be on the picture at the end, but 
his deal was the same as mine. It was only till the end of the year. So mm. George left himself the option to, to uh, hire one of us and he hired me. So at that point, uh, beginning of January to the end, which was, you know, mid-May, I was the editor on the film. What was the what what was the moment where because I mean you're you're editing um, Carrie before this and you're editing Sisters and, and and Brian's films, so so when you when you looked at this film it was it's it's so different from what you were doing with De Palma. Um, yeah. What was your sort of did did it take you a while to acclimatize to it and 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 what were your feelings towards the film? Uh, you know that famously as you say Alan Ladd Junior. You know gave you a, a sort of thumbs up of a certain kind, but famously lots of people saw this film early stages and, and were very dismissive, you know, didn't, didn't think this was going to work. Yeah. Well, I thought it was great. I mean, I, mm. I had seen production stills at a friend's house in New York and I was just knocked out. I mean, I saw pictures of the, you know, C3, C3PO and R2-D2 and, and Chewbacca and the Sandcrawler and the Stormtroopers and Darth Vader. And these are black and white stills, but, you know, on the set, uh, production stills. And I just thought it was a knockout. And I, uh, we had had dinner at their house and I came back home that night and I said to my wife, I said, you know, I really would love to work on this movie. Mm. And it seemed impossible. But um, no, I, you know, Nobody, no two people have the same sensibility. Of course, obviously, Brian and George are very far apart in that sense. But I don't fully share Brian's sensibility either, you know. And mm. I, one of the reasons uh, that uh, I was so excited about it was to be able to work with somebody uh, who had a different sensibility. And, uh, not, you know, I appreciate Brian and everything he did for me. And I think he's brilliant at what he does nobody moves the camera better or uh, conceives better visual sequences than Brian, but he's not that interested in performance. I mean, his, he's not, the actors are not his medium. It's more of the camera and the editing. And for an editor, it's great, you know, but uh, there's some, you know, macabre aspects to uh, Brian's soul and uh, <laughs> I don't fully share those, but, uh, and I didn't, you know, I, I had just done Carrie, which is a horror picture, and I didn't want to do just horror pictures. And in fact, the next picture Brian did was another sort of horror picture, uh, The Fury. And, you know, I, I, I didn't feel I could turn it down. So I, you know, I signed on. And But it's not my, you know, he, he was describing the film to me. He says, and at the end, his head explodes. <laughs> I thought, really? This is what you want to do? You want to make a movie where a guy's head explodes? But uh, I, I agreed to do it because he had been so important in my life and so, done so much for me in my career. I didn't feel I could turn him down. But it's not my, it's not me, you know. Mm. Mm. Uh, but the editor is that's not his. That's not my job. Is you know, my job is to help the director realize his vision or her vision. I must hasten to add. And yet, I mean, that's what's interesting about about the the memoir as well. Is that as you go through your career, there are so many times where you have sort of different relationships with different directors and different, uh, you know, um, I mean, it's almost like you, you, you do, a, it's almost a different job to some degree that you're helping out much more with the story. You're visiting the set and you're, you're meeting them and, and, you know, that those personalities are kind of very important in how, how you can 
how you can work and sometimes how you can't work. Well, you know, directors are as different as, as any people are different from each other. So you have to make relationships, you know, with who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, relationships are going to be different, of course, with each one. There are people I did not get along with who uh, are not in the book. But, but you can tell us now. <laughs> well, you can look in my filmography and see who's not in the book and figure it out. <laughs> I'm thumbing through IMDb as we speak. No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I have to thank you, by the way, because Star Wars was my first ever trip to the cinema with my dad. Wow with my dad and my brother, 1977, in Barrow in Furness in Cumbria, in the north of England. We queued outside. It was a genuine blockbuster in that we queued out right round the block to the swimming pool. Of course. Uh, it was winter, so it was dark, because it, oh, it, did, it, it didn't, get, didn't get up north until the winter. And we, we, it was a sold-out screening, so absolutely... Um, it took us so long to actually get into the cinema that the film had already started. So I never oh, saw, no. I never saw that front crawl bit or anything. How old oh, was no. I? I was, I was six years old. Six. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, uh, I was a, a little kid, but I still to this day remember being terrified of uh, Darth Vader. I was going to say, I think six is kind of young for this movie. Yeah, it, yeah I, I guess it was, but I was just so, I, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, can you imagine it was the first film I saw on the big screen as well? So it was, it was like, yeah. uh, and th- but the thing was, then we didn't get to see it again. It didn't play on television until 1982. And oh, so, yeah. you know, I was 10 by the time it came to show on television. And in the meantime, I had to read the books. I had to play with the action figures. So it was very... Um, Kind of, it's very, very big for me in that way. Great, and and listens to the record and the the, the soundtrack and everything. So, so thanks for that. That was a, a, a great experience. But then you, you you know, obviously you're going on and you're having. I mean, the the, the list of films is just is phenomenal. And um, some of those films, as I was saying earlier, you're having a a, a huge impact on. I, I, I love the story about Footloose and about, um, you know, suggesting another song and suggesting how to do the sort of the, the feet of the title sequence. Uh, Herbert uh, Ross was a uh, highly respected studio director. And I think it's funny on this recent trip I made through Europe, uh, his, his name wasn't very well known his mm. work isn't highly regarded i mean de palma is like a god for the french you know and i think i got more attention from being associated with him than i did from star wars they they revere brian in in france uh herbert ross they just they haven't heard much you know they i guess they knew the name but i think he's considered sort of a studio apparatchik or something but uh he was a very uh, skillful director. He knew his stuff. He had, you know, of course, a very different sensibility. He had been a dancer and a choreographer. Uh, my approach to editing is is sort of dance-like. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I love cutting to music. For me, it's the equivalent of dancing. It's the you know aspect of editing that's most like chore- you know most like choreography. Whereas mm. choreographers work to organize movement in three-dimensional space uh, against music. Editors organize movement through a two-dimensional plane 
against music and it's very similar to choreography and I enjoy it uh, enormously. Footloose gave me the opportunity to exercise that muscle, you know, that I had done some of that in uh, Phantom of the Paradise, mm. uh, which was partly a musical, but uh, hadn't really had a chance to, to go full in on that uh, since then. And uh, it was a joy. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, and, and a revelation for him too, because um, I don't think that, I don't know. He was very appreciative, is all I can say. Mm. He was married to a ballerina, a woman named Nora Kay, who uh, my mother had been a professional dancer. She had worked in modern dance, and she told me that Nora Kay was one of the two greatest ballerinas she had ever seen in her life. And I told this to Nora, and she said, who was the other? <laughs> who wants to check out the competition. Yeah, so I asked my mother, I said, you know, who was it? And she said, uh, Pavlova. And I told Nora, she said, oh, okay. She, that was, she was okay with that. She was, if if Pavlova, Pavlova's good enough, then then that, that that's uh, the critical criteria correct. She, she, uh, she said, oh, okay. Yeah. But Herbert told me that her very first debut, she had 23 curtain calls. She was a huge, huge star as a ballerina. Uh, they were married, uh, and she was... She was funny because she was from uh, Brooklyn, I think. And she had this accent it was sort of like the opposite of what you'd expect from a ballet star. It was, it was very uh, sort of working class New York accent. Uh, but she had very refined taste uh, with this funny Brooklyn accent. But anyway, she, she, uh, she was very encouraging. She, she liked my work. And I think that helped me with, with Herbert, of course. And I mean, another person that you bring up in, in the book, which uh, is a sort of musical hero, is, is Bernard Herrmann, although your relationship yes. with him, is a, it, it, it doesn't get off to a great start. No, well, you know, it had been my uh, idea to use Benny's music in Sisters. And I had shown this to Brian and encouraged him. And um, Benny uh, and I had a, uh, a misadventure on the, on the mixing stage, which I describe in great detail in my book. But I became uh, persona non grata in his eyes through no fault of my own, I would hasten to add. Mm. And after the picture came out, Brian wrote an article in the Village Voice describing how I had championed using Benny's music in the film. And when we met again on the following film that we did, uh, Obsession, his attitude changed you know, 180 degrees and he was very warm and welcoming. And I assumed that he had read the article, but we, we became friends and it was very gratifying. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, that's, what a career as well, you know, going from. Well, he was a sheer genius. I mean, his, his first film was Citizen Kane. His final film was Taxi Driver. So, yeah, I mean, there's not much, you know, you could dream of having a span of of a career of, which which features those those films. If if it was only those two films, it would be enough. But you know, when I met him, I thought he was the oldest person, the most ancient person I'd ever met in my life. And he was sixty-one at the time. Sixty-one in the seventies was old. <laughs> it's now nowadays it isn't at all. No, sixty-one. Well, even in those days, it wasn't that old, but he was older than his years because he was possessed with uh, a constant and boiling rage that uh, ate him up from inside, I think. Um, he felt the smallest slight was 
terribly wounding to him. And uh, Hitchcock threw out his score for a torn curtain, and he was so hurt by that that he left Hollywood and moved to London. So he was, you know, he was very deeply emotional man, and 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 he paid the price. But you know, as my father used to say, when he was my age, he'd been dead for sixteen years. So it's hard for me to think of him at at that age, seeming so old to me. But I was twenty, what twenty six at the time. So, I mean, there are some temperamental. There's, there, I mean, temperamental artist is a sort of almost a, a bit of a stereotype. But in the filmmaking world, there seems to be almost sometimes an encouragement of that sort of temperament sort of you know i mean another another director who you have a you know you have a very successful working relationship with but also you know somewhat well i think temperamental is a nice way of saying it um is john hughes because you you have you have a wonderful uh rapport with him to begin with right well john had this pattern of, of getting crushes on people he would mm. he would find somebody the other greatest you know and, and then uh, james spader told me the story that you know he had worked for him in uh pretty in pink and uh he became friends with him and he'd go over to the house and they'd sit in the hot tub together and they'd stay up all night playing music and then one day he couldn't get him on the phone he had no idea why it was just something that uh was a pattern of john's that he repeated that uh he would get these intense you know crush is the best word i can think of on people. and then for no reason he would drop them so it happened to me and happened to a lot of other people too. And, and his films were, were kind of quite challenging as well because of um, uh, how he was how he was going around shooting and the, and the coverage that he was giving you, right? Yeah, well, he was a writer, so he was always generating uh, material, I think. I'm not really sure how it happened. It, you know, the, the script was long in the first place, and then mm. scene would come in in dailies and would be much longer than, than scene as written on the page. And, I think, where did all this material come from? I'm not sure if he improvised it on the spot or if he wrote overnight and handed out pages in the morning. Or I'm not really sure how it happened, but um, I remember going down to the set uh, and speaking to the production, uh, uh, sorry, the, the script supervisor. And I said to her, how's it going? She said, not good. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the master run runs 14 minutes. I said, well, the camera only holds 11 minutes of film. She said, we did a pickup. Seeing in 14 minutes. Oh, my God. I, I mean, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I always remember watching that. Uh, I mean, I remember watching it when it first came out. I'm not sure if I saw it on the big screen or if I saw it on video, but it was a very, it felt like a very innovative teen comedy. It was, a, you know, it had all those director camera things and i think you were responsible if i don't if i remember correctly for for the sort of final sting of him staying and ushering people out of the uh of the theater well no that was john's idea ah I mean, right he had shot a, a number of endings uh different endings but at the same time it was was when they shot the shower sequence you know when and matthew's wrapped in a in a bath towel they improvise a number of gags that, that to be played at the end but um, in those days, that was, it wasn't a state, you know, today everybody stays to the end of the movie because they expect to see something at the very end. I think Marvel does that all the time, right? I don't go to Marvel movies, so I'm not sure, but uh, I think that's what they do. And, um, but at that time, the idea of a, a joke on the end of the titles was, I said, John, nobody's going to see this. Everybody will left the theater by then. So uh, it occurred to me that 
that there was a scene that we'd taken out, a really funny scene, but in, in the context of the movie, it was just in the wrong place. So um, we had dropped the scene for, for you know, reasons of continuity and, and not continuity, but pace. And mm. it just didn't make sense where it was originally written. And it was, since it was so funny, I thought maybe we could play that scene against the titles and then people will stick around to watch the scene and then they'll see the tag at the end. So that was... That was my contribution. Yeah, and I mean that's as you say, it's sort of um, uh, prescient of how of how films would would start utilizing that to keep people in theaters for that little bit longer and see that stuff. How how did it? Um, I mean, one of the other films that I I was yeah, I mean, it, there's so many films I, I'd love to talk about all of them, but um, Falling Down, the Joel Schumacher film. Yeah. is is one of those that's one of those films that i every now and again there's a movie that it's not i i i like it but i i i it's kind of like it worries me and i have to go back to the cinema and watch it again and watch it you know two or three times in maybe one week and falling down i was in liverpool i remember i went to see that like two or three times because i oh. couldn't quite work out why this film fascinated me so much and yet um and yet in some ways it, it, on on paper it shouldn't have well i think one of the interesting things about falling down is the casting mm. was joel originally sent the script to michael douglas to play the part that duval eventually played he was the policeman mm. and michael douglas read the script he says no no i want to play defense you know joel thought sure great you know so then we got duval to play the part that was originally offered to michael douglas but you know in the in the in the script, defense is this character who, um, I mean, it's a very interesting character because his reaction to situations that we all find frustrating in life, you know, stuck in traffic or uh, a clerk at a store won't give us change for a dollar so we can make a phone call or um, it's past 11 o'clock so we can't order breakfast at the fast food joint you know all these mm. little annoyances petty annoyances that we meet in life uh this character would re react to violently so so we share his his irritation but we're repelled by his resort to violence so there's this ambig ambivalence about our feeling uh to the character but it's distorted by the star uh, power of Michael Douglas, who's, you know, uh, got the charisma of a movie star. And here he is playing this sort of kind of insane character. And his responses to situations are in sync with ours, but his, his behavior is, is aberrant, you know? So it's that push and pull, uh, how you feel about the character that, complicates the uh the story but i think that's part of what makes it interesting too yeah absolutely yeah it certainly it certainly fascinated me i certainly uh, you know there is as i say there are some films that i wouldn't necessarily put on my sort of top 10 list but at the same time just just they've got something in them that the that you keep having to go back to and 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 trying to solve and trying to you know so and that's a that's that's one i i uh I definitely had that with. So as you're as you're sort of established at, at this point, you also have um, a moment where where you sort of go back to work with Brian for for Mission Impossible, and then also later um, Mission to Mars. And and 
I mean, one thing that's, that I, I got the feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, but when I was reading your book, I got the feeling that it didn't seem like the industry, you're, you, you have this point that you're only as good as your last picture and it's kind of Pluto Nash kind of, kind of uh, puts you in a bad position, even though you've had all these huge successes. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, that's really, it, it feels really unforgiving of the industry and really, really great, uh, ungrateful, I should say. Well, I, I have this line that I give people, I say, you know, when something bad happens to them, they get fired or whatever, I say, they'll take it personally. They don't consider you a person. So you can't, uh, if you want to work in the business, you have to develop a, a, sort of a thick skin but there's no illusions about it, I don't think. I mean, people know that uh, Hollywood tends to be kind of cynical and uh, and ignorant, you know. People people don't know your resume. I mean, just because I've done all these films doesn't, people, doesn't mean that the people I'm working with know it. Some do, some don't. I remember I was in working on a picture called The Fighting Temptations, and the head of the studio at the time was a woman named uh, Sherry Lansing. And Sherry, we'd had a screening and a preview, and uh, there was some. she had some notes, and she came to the cutting room, and we showed her the change, and she was very happy, and she was there with a, a couple of her other assistants, executives, you know, junior executives. Mm. And she started sort of making a point about preview screenings. And, and she said, you know, she turned to me to, in order to make a point. She said, for instance, what's the most successful picture you ever worked on? I said, Star Wars. And she stopped dead in her tracks because clearly that was not, it's not what she had hoped I would say. It was not in line with the argument that she was trying to make. It wasn't helping her point, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what her point was, but certainly and she just stopped. She said, you had to go and say Star Wars. I said, what <laughs> you asked me, you know? So that's what I mean. That people don't necessarily know, you know, you don't walk around with a resume on your back, you know, so it doesn't really matter what your past successes have been. People may not know it, you know. But it just feels like such a such such a, a fundamental part of making a movie. And I I, I mean, I look at editors uh, like, um, uh, you know, Felma Schumacher with Martin Scorsese or or uh, Sally Menke with with the early Quentin Tarantino. And I sort of think, you know, there's there's a moment when, well, unfortunately, uh, tragically, Sally Menke dies, that I don't think it's a coincidence Tar Tarantino's films sort of drop off in quality after that. You know, I think it just seems so essential that the directors have a, have great editors behind them. Why well, is Why isn't that appreciated? Why isn't that, you know, that should be you know, nailed into the system. Yeah, well, you know, directors have massive egos and they don't like the, the idea that they're sharing credit for anything with anyone. That's part of it. I don't know. I don't know. I, You know, the other thing is that as far as Tarantino's concerned, Brian made the point to me that directors don't get better as they age. You know, they, their best films are done in their prime of life, not at the end. And it's true of Hitchcock, his films got worse. And it's true of most directors that they, they, they hit a peak and then, you know, their last films are, you know, like it happened with De Palma, you know, his later films were not as good as his earlier films. Mm. And uh, it, it can be true of Tarantino too. Uh, Brian says that directors are remembered for the films they did in their 30s. I think it's possibly true. But I realized recently, uh, something I've known all my life, but I never thought about it, was that the, the editor 
is the one person on the film with whom the director works most closely. The collaboration with the editor is more than with any of the other people on the picture. And it's more extended and and uh, closer than, than with anyone else. So um, I don't know what that's particularly germane to your point, but yeah, these films are not, they're not made by robots. You know, every, every movie you see is handmade. Every, every splice or cut now, it's not a splice anymore, but every cut is a choice made by a person. And, uh, you know, every person has personal predilections and styles and so forth. So every picture you see is a handmade film by someone. And it's usually the editor and the director will come in and make adjustments to bring it closer to his or her sensibility. But the editor is making a lot of choices, many more choices than is possible to change. Except of course on Star Wars, where we basically changed every choice. But uh, usually these films are, you know, made, by the editor and adjusted by the director. I, I guess that's what I mean is just that, you know, you're spending millions of dollars most of the time, multi-millions of dollars on a, on a, on a, on a, 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 a film. And then you're know, one of the principal, most important jobs about putting that together and, and, and the final product presenting it. And you, you know, you're not checking the, per- you know, you're not checking the person's CV. You're not, you're not, casting the editor with the same care that you would cast the lead actor or the same care that you would cast, you know, you would hire anybody who's, who's going to have that fundamental uh, an effect on the film, you know. I would take issue with that. I think the direct, you know, director is very careful about who they hire. I mean, especially because you're going to be spending so many hours with that person, you know. So it's more the studio than the, than the, the director it's, um, is, is what I kind of meant, I guess. No, it's not. It's the director who hires the editor. Uh, unless, of course, the director goes off course and then the studio, you know, will bring somebody in. That's I mean, so, sort of what happened to me later in my career, which is that uh, I got fewer offers from directors, but I started getting offers from producers and studio executives to come in and fix something that they thought wasn't working. You know? How did you feel about that work? How did you, was, was there a different set of challenges that were quite that were interesting for you? Well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel, you know, it's, it's, um, there's a certain ambivalence about it. I, you know, you, you want to work on good pictures. Right. Uh, so it's not fun to work on something that's not a good picture. Uh, yet, if you can improve it, there's a sense of satisfaction about that, you know, and, um, and, you know, there's an ego satisfaction coming in to save the day, you know, you feel very smart, uh, if you can manage to pull it off, but, um, um, yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we, I did, I say it as a joke, but it's partially true. I say, I did it for the money, you know, you have to make a living in this world and you take whatever jobs come along. Sure. If the job isn't coming from the director and it comes from a producer, you take that job, you know? So, um, there's a certain reality about earning a living in the world that you have to, uh, adjust to. And when you had the opportunity then to sort of you sat and, and you wrote your memoir and you were sort of looking back, was there anything that sort of surprised you in in the in the process of of going over your your career and your and your life? Well, I started to realize that a lot of my relationships with directors had ended badly. I thought maybe this 
maybe I was doing it. Maybe there's something I was doing that was contributing to that, you know. But uh, I mean, I I argue with directors. I I feel uh, I don't know if it's arrogance or whatever. I've always felt to be the intellectual equal of whomever I'm working with. Not always true. There's some, you know. I think they have gifts that I don't have uh, certainly, and I definitely acknowledge that. But in terms of um, you know discussions about the work, I feel you know sort of I've always felt sort of an equal footing uh, and debated them. Uh, when I disagreed with them, I felt the obligation to pursue my opinion until they shut it down uh, because I feel it's doing them a service that if their ideas are put to the test in discussions with me, they can go into you know more public situations with the confidence of knowing that their ideas have been tested. So uh, even if I disagree with them, I feel I'm doing them a service. But uh, they may not have agreed with that. <laughs> so Mission to Mars sort of ended badly with Brian and I sort of on the outs. But uh, we've we've made up since then, and uh, I'm happy to report that our relationship's on a good footing again. But you know, Hughes sort of cut me off, and and uh, Herbert Ross was unhappy with. Uh, I wanted to take a vacation with my children, uh, and and he was unhappy with my going away for a week. Uh, so. But, you know, I, I'm sure I would have gotten more work from Brian if we'd stayed on the same coast. But I moved to the West Coast. He stayed in New York. So he hired me when he did a picture on the West Coast, like Mission Impossible or Mission to Mars. Those were uh, West Coast productions, and he hired me for those. Uh, and the same is true with Herbert. I mean, Herbert moved to New York um, after Steel Magnolias. Uh, he did one more picture. I think um, the one with uh, Steve Martin, I can't remember. It's about a, a, a mafia boss who's in oh is it my blue heaven is that blue heaven. yeah so i think he you know after he did that he moved to new york and married uh, jackie kennedy's sister so uh and then hughes retired basically he he uh stopped editing films uh just stopped directing films after curly sue i think i think that was his last one so at a certain point all the directors i'd worked with had either retired or passed away so uh, you start having to work with new people and uh, it's always a uh, roll of the dice. Yeah, and you sort of become, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the directors are getting younger, just like the policemen these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, there's one final question I want to ask Paul, um, uh, and, and you've been very generous with your time, so I really appreciate that. Uh, but the one final question is: We always ask for a, a, a recommendation for for a book because this is a podcast about about books, about people writing about films specifically. What 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 sort of uh, what would you like to recommend for our for our listeners? Oh gosh, you put me on the spot here. Uh, well, um, I, I don't read a lot about film. Uh, mm. Let me look at my shelf here. Well, there's um, you know there's Walter Murch's book very slim book. Uh, Walter approaches editing from more of a uh, scientific standpoint. Mm. Uh, I tend to I tend to see it as sort of an in, instinctive art. I think Walter has a more scientific uh, slant on on editing, which is very interesting. 
I would recommend his book in the blink of an eye. Mm. I, I, I read his, I haven't read that one. I read his book he did with Michael on Batcher, the, the conversations, which was right. a, which was a very interesting, very interesting book. Um, when you, when you watch a movie nowadays, do you, do you sort of watch a movie with a sort of the professional eye and go, Oh, that's, that's well edited or, or vice versa. Yeah, I do. Who, who are the editors working at the moment that you, that you sort of admire? Oh, there's a number of them. There's a, there's a man named Tom Cross who did Whiplash, I believe. Very talented. Eddie Hamilton has taken over the Mission Impossible franchise. He's an excellent editor. He also worked on Maverick. And uh, who else? My daughter, Gina. Gina Hirsch, excellent right. editor. She's waiting for her first big hit. I keep telling her, just, you know, you're one hit away from stardom. That's the way it works. Absolutely. Absolutely. Herbert Ross used to always say that. It's all hits and flops, hits and flops. That's all it's about, hits and flops. Uh, absolutely. That's uh, that's, that's a brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul, for, for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And it's been, it's been really interesting, fascinating talking to you. Well, that's great. It's been fun talking to you. Okay, that was my conversation with Paul Hirsch. Um, I, it was a fascinating and a, a great honor, in fact, to talk to the man who had such an impact on so many of the films that, that uh, formed my love of cinema. So I will, uh, I'll be very great. I'm very grateful that he took the time to do that. His book is wonderful. Uh, if you haven't already read it, I'm sure this conversation will have encouraged you to go out and get a copy. A long time ago in a cutting room far, far away, my 50 years editing Hollywood hits, Star Wars, Carrie, Ferris Bueller's Day, Off, Mission Impossible, and much, much more. Um, all the oh oh uh, a quick note uh, would be that um, next week uh, there will be a there won't be an episode. I am away at a film festival, so um, it's unlikely that there will be a, a, an episode. So I think we're going to have a, a short break, hopefully just a week, maybe two weeks. Uh, before we're back if you um, are hankering after some writers on film talk there are over 80 episodes to go back back to and discover some great guests if you haven't heard them all and if you have you might want to go back and revisit a couple because uh, some of those conversations are, are well worth delving into thanks go to Ali Howard for the artwork and to Elliot Atkins for the music and thank you dear listener for uh for, for joining me and hopefully uh, you'll be here again soon take care Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 